some of the densest writing that it's, uh, you know, it's that Romans is, uh, or Galatians is Romans on steroids, maybe, that it's uh, very compact. And Paul is dealing, I think he's dealing with what we can describe as the most basic human problem. And to, I'm going to try to talk in big terms and then we'll break it down. But salvation for Paul is equated with Christian unity. And we've talked about that, that uh, there is this agape fellowship, there is this love, the whole reason he's writing uh, is to maintain the unity of the saints that is in no way secondary, but is the very essence of salvation for Paul. That if, you know, Peter who comes and he's going to not fellowship with the Gentiles or not eat lunch with them, I don't know what meal, uh, for Paul that is then a loss of the original unity that's been posited through uh, faith. And so he's describing this as a one-family relationship. And these are the two modes of doing identity in Paul in the New Testament uh, that uh, he's going to argue that we have a new way of doing identity, uh, not identity through difference. Uh, I'll, I'll run this down a little bit, but there'd be many different ways of describing this. Identity through difference is, well, I'm a Jew, you're a Gentile, and that difference is definitive of us. I'm a man, you're a woman, and that difference is definitive of what manness, maleness, and femaleness. I'm, I'll be the master, and you the, you know, uh, that, that was at one time Greek, you know, you just go through and you could multiply the differences or the way that we do identity. And Paul then is taking those very ways of doing identity and saying that that's the mode of doing identity through the law. The law splits things up. The law is alienating. The Jews are themselves constituted in through the law. But Paul is claiming that this alienating identity through difference is no longer the case. There's no longer Jew nor Greek. Does that mean there are not people that, you know, are ethically Jewish? And eth- no, that it means that that mode of doing identity. Obviously, there's still going to be men and women. Women uh, that that is not undone. You know, we're not all unisex in Christianity, but we don't do identity on the basis of our human gender or human sexuality. We have our identity in Christ. And so he says we're clothed in Christ. Let me let me state this and don't uh, I'm gonna state it philosophically, but don't don't get angsty about um, because I'm using the, that he he says this first of all in very concrete terms. He says that it's the seed of Abraham versus the seeds then, uh, you know, that uh, flow, uh, you know, through the tribes or uh, that the Jews and the Gentiles, but it's the one seed. I don't know, are you familiar with the problem of the one and the many? This is the basic philosophical problem. 
it doesn't refer so much to a number, but to the unity. That is, that we have a multiplicity of things. And how do, you know, things cohere? In metaphysics, uh, in philosophy, it usually means the, you know, for Plato, the forms were the supreme idea. For Parmenides, the universe itself was the one. For Plotinus, being as such. And so we have this multiplicity of things. How do, how do they cohere? The philosophical problem then uh, is really articulating the human predicament. And I'll bring this to an existential level that I think Paul is describing. But we can describe the philosophical problem in a, in a similar way to the problem of change. Uh, you know, if everything is changing, then there is no certainty, so we need some unchanging reality. Paul is going to mention the promise of God, that that's our, you know, the writer of Hebrews will say, this is our unchanging reality. Uh, so if there's nothing that does not change, this is why Aristotle posits the unmoved mover, uh, that this is the basis for, you know, uh, our understanding all things is that there has to be one unchanging thing. But the problem is uh, that, of course, if you're the unmoved mover, that that uh, identity is not available to you in some way, and that God in that picture is not, in fact, uh, in, in any way in communi communication with the world. So the unmoved mover is... The <laughs> I love it when you say that. Uh, so we could have uh, the the unmoved mover thinks of nothing but himself because he's the one unchanging thing. Uh, in the history of theology, the history of philosophy, there is always this pursuit of unity, of certainty, of some unchanging thing. It's going to take a variety of forms. You know, Anselm will talk about the one thought, or even I think the Tower of Babel is a project in which they're trying to achieve unity and certainty. But of course, what we're really describing philosophically is the existential problem of being human. That is, what does it mean? Who am I? I was once a child, now I'm a young man. I'm lying at this point. Uh, you know, I, I was a middle aged man, now I'm an older gentleman. Uh, and soon I'll be a corpse, uh, and you all come by and look at me and say, oh, he looks so natural. Of course, he never looked natural while he was alive. So, um, so it has to do with the problem of change and ultimately the problem of death. That is, who are we? How do we identify who we are? We, we were searching for uh, some identity in an existential sense, even in, even in not... Uh, even in a kind of immediate sense, who you know, we ask the question, who or what am I? I have a kind of image of myself, of who I should be, uh, and I see you guys, you all look pretty stable, you're holding together pretty well, but um, maybe when we see our own image in the mirror and we, uh, you know, this is the picture of an infant or a small child, they see their image in the mirror and the image is a stable image, but inside you know you're uh you're a toddler the word toddler means you get 
toddling over, that you can't hold together, you can't even stand up. Even now when I get hungry, you know, or I'm hurting, or uh, I feel ashamed, uh, you kind of lose a grip on yourself. Um, so we hover, I think, even in our immediate experience of ourselves, how we think others perceive us, how we would like uh, to perceive ourselves, and we cannot, it seems like this stable identity eludes us. And so we can talk about, and Paul in Galatians 3, it's a very similar, very parallel passage to what he's doing in Romans 7 and 8, in which he's talking about, you know, the desire for self is kind of an object beyond reach. I do what I don't want to do, and what I want to do I don't do, that there is no stable identity there. And he's connecting that to the function of the law. That is, the desire, the covetousness and the law. We can't keep the law, or we can't attain life through the law, we can't attain the goal of the law. So think that, I think all of that is here that what is being addressed in Galatians 3 in talking about identity. We're talking about the most intimate, most immediate thing in human experience. This is our problem. This is our most basic problem. Uh, and what is happening in uh, Galatia is that these Judaizers, or the ones that have come from James or Peter, would create two families. They would create a kind of split identity. Uh, Paul is arguing then for both, uh, I believe, an existential unity. We are one in Christ. We no longer do identity through difference. But he's also describing an ontological unity that we actually then have uh, uh, a real unifying, you know, the spirit of life that we share. So in this, he, he refers to the seed that, of course, is a reference to Christ that we'll read about. But the family, you know, this is the problem of the one and the many. How is it answered? Well, it's answered in a twofold sense. And Paul makes reference to it. He says, but God is one, right? There's the reference to the one. But then he refers to Christ, you know, as the one seed. How does this solve the problem? Well, because the seed, then, is not just a singular individual, but it is a corporate body that we can participate in the unity of the Godhead. So Christ is the head, the one seed, into which the many are incorporated. And I just, you know, how this is the way that we do identity. This is the way we find our identity. And don't think, you know, abstract theological stuff here. I think in a group like this, who are we? I think in the love of, that we have for one another and the unity that we have. I think it's only in that situation that we can come to a true understanding, a true uh, idea of who we are in Christ. Paul raises the question here, why the law then? And, you know, the idea is the law marks the problem of alienation and sin. It shows us the problem that sin is, in, in a way, made sinful. It's 
you know, think of the temple walls. It's all about division. Not access, but a lack of access to God. The walls are walls of separation that Paul, uh, you know, in Ephesians will talk about the dividing wall of hostility being broken down. In Romans, he talks about this division, not simply between Jew and Gentile, but the law then has split us within. We're alienated, you know, not, and, and that's not quite right. It's not exactly the law, but it's sin that has you know, alienate us, but the law marks that. So, he says the scripture has shut up everyone understands so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ must be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed. So how are we, you know, uh, made in uh, a fam into a family that was the promise given to Abraham well it occurs through Christ so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe so where does the fault lie is the fault with the law you know even we could ask in a sense is the fault necessarily with ourselves well actually Paul locates it in a very specific Thing. He says, well, the fault lies with sin. And the reason it's, in, it's important to do that, uh, sin is not ultimately who we are. It's not ultimately definitive of who we are. But our tendency then is to think, oh, that's who I am. That, you know, maybe you're a little neurotic. Uh, I know you're neurotic. Uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to share. We're all a little neurotic. You're a little screwed up in your head. Uh, and you might think that's who you really are. But what Paul is saying, no, that's not actually it. Uh, sin deceives through desire, and this desire is itself the thing that divides. And the division there, there's this three-way division. You know, There's the law, there's the I or the ego, uh, there's the body of death. That's not really who we are, though, is it? Paul says, I have died with Christ. He just said that in chapter 2. So the contrast is not between law and grace or the old and the new, but actually the ultimate contrast that he's working with here are two different kinds of human subject. The subject who, you know, the law is written on their hearts in, in Christ and those who are incapacitated because the law is an objectified force over and against them. Think here of you know Romans seven one to six. That the the that's two ways of doing identity. Either you're found as defined outside of the law, or you are found in Christ, which is to be found uh, completely in the place from which the law emanates. So. God is one. God is a unity. Uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, are one, but it's a trinity. So God is totally, um, this, this is a little abstract, but I'll run it down here. God is totally self-conscious, meaning that he has no hidden, unknown aspects of his being. What has happened in Protestantism? You may not know it's happened. Um, but with Luther, 
we have a kind of understanding of God that he's hidden from us. Uh, this is called nominalism or you know, uh, the idea that we actually don't have access to the essence of God. It's Hegelianism, it's modernism, it's, I think it's just really Protestantism. Um, do we, uh, uh, you know, is God a spiritual reality that is removed from us? Do we have access to the essence of God? That's, what's the, that's the question here in chapter 3. Do we have access to the very essence of God in Christ Jesus? Do we have access to, because that's what we need if we're going to have true familial unity. And I believe, of course we do. But the way that we do our doctrine and our theology in Protestantism would be to say, no, of course we don't. And I think that's the travesty of a Protestant understanding. Uh, There is this idea that in some way, the spiritual reality is a disembodied reality. The spiritual reality is over and against the corporate, you know, body of Christ. That's the that's the significance here. So you can just go through Buddhism, Hinduism, nationalism, tribalism. They're each founded on the idea of you know what is Buddhism. All is one. Atman is Brahman is Hinduism. You know, Babel. We got a great one tower. Uh, There's this drive for unity that is, I believe, definitive of the death drive within us. It's not simply a philosophical problem, but it's a picture of the very destructiveness, our destructive nature. You know, when you say identity through difference, don't just think philosophical. That's why you hate your neighbor. That's why you hate those foreigners. That's why you... Because that's the way you're doing identity. Your identity depends upon a, a kind of agon, antagonism. And so, um, the picture here then, we have a problem, it's alienation, and it's resolved in and through Christ. The human project is to gain unity, to gain oneness on the basis of oneness or you know identity through difference that actually reduces to you know, think that this may not uh, identity through difference that reduces to one and the same thing. Let me explain. If your identity depends upon the, the one you hate, what would you do with the one you hate? You'd kill them, right? You'd obliterate them. And so there is the literal sense that this antagonism is a kind of death dealing antagonism. Um. Yeah, there'd be a lot of different ways of saying the same thing. Um, That, you know, if you think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what is, and you know, I think this is where identity through difference arises, how do you define the good? Well, in that system, it is a self-referential system in which the good you identify through the evil and the evil through the good. So the yin-yang symbol, you know, that you have the two 
things in one circle, but then you have a little tiny circle in the two halves. The yin is in the yang, and the yang is in the yin, meaning that those two are not actually opposites. There is no such thing as a comparison of opposites. I mean, that's what we posit, that we say, I'm everything that that other is not. Catholicism and Protestantism. Yeah. If, there were, if it were really complete opposite, you couldn't compare them. Uh, but the point is, well, in this system, you need, you're positing, you know, this is Star Wars, that you have the good, you know, the light side and the dark side. But it's all one big force. And so it is the idea of a unity that contains difference. Because the system itself is autonomous. Is, it my, is that getting it or not? Yeah. I think a manifestation of the issue with that, because that seems fine, but it doesn't seem like an issue. But the issue is when I, like, uh, like when you think of how people view God, they think God's anger towards sin, his wrath, and God's love. And then we pit those two against each other. Justice and mercy. Mercy and things like that. Like in where you're defining, we're defining mercy by justice. Because we get mercy because we're saved from God's justice. We get love because we're saved from his wrath. And where the identity through difference, uh, maybe that's not an adequate or accurate way to describe mm-hmm. God, but then we do that same thing in life. Yeah, you're describing it better than I was because practically that's what we've done in Protestantism. So the deus absconditus, the hiddenness of God, is... You know, uh, that's what I was thinking. I can't repeat what it was. The, the, the hiddenness of God and the revealedness of God are a dialectic. But is God in his revealedness who he is in his hiddenness? And in a Lutheran understanding or in Catholic nominalism which Luther inherits or in Protestantism this is always there There are always these two things there is God in his essence and then there is the revealedness of God and it's a dialectic that is always uh, pitted against so that God himself is known only through this identity through difference. There is the imminent trinity, who God is in himself, and then there is the economic trinity, who God is in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and those two things are pitted against one another. It's kind of like when people see a difference in God between Old Testament and New Testament. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's, oh, well, that's the God of, as Sharon was saying, there's the, the angry God, and there's the God of love. That is our natural tendency. And, and you've just hit it, that that's the way that 
Christianity usually gets done. I know you're not. Um, this is too brief a period and too you know to, to capture that. This you mean this is what everybody's doing? Yeah, in one way or another, this is what everybody's doing. They're playing a game that is. This is why Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel is so important. Hegel, I believe, is true to Martin Luther. Where does Hegel end? Hegel ends in total atheism. I mean, I think that the modern, you know, this is Slavoj Zizek and Elaine Badu, and uh, that in a sense they're true. I think that if you're true to a, this Protestant dialectic, atheism is the proper outcome. Now, can you describe what you mean by dialectic? Uh, well, it's the same thing, you know. That that in fact, Hegel refers to Genesis chapter three. Uh, but in Hegel, he uh, you know he refers to the knowledge of good and evil. But he uh, also then does the slave master dialectic. You know what is a slave? A slave is someone with a master. What is a master? A master is someone who has a slave. Uh, in that dialectic, of course, the slave is a, as an is at an advantage in that he can ultimately recognize that actually it's not the master that it, it, he fears and that he's enslaved to, it's the fear of death. It's the fear of what the master can do to him. And so actually there's a possibility for the slave to escape the dialectic as he is realizes that what he is actually uh, controlled by, and this is very, you know, this is very Lutheran, but also very, it's there in Scripture, the idea of the fear of death or the, you know, uh, absence and nothingness. But that's the end in Hegel. As you tarry with the negative, as you hold yourself out in nothingness and death, you realize the kind of, you, you've encountered an absolute uh, category through which you can come to true authenticity. And what would be the real nothingness in death? Well, it wouldn't posit a transcendent being like God. It would just posit nothingness, pure and simple. And so to be a true dialectician, you have to have a, you have to posit the notion of death as an absolute. So that's the Hegelian dialectic, but the dialectic in some form or another just gets taken up in many different ways uh, in Christianity. That the various aspects of God, you know, the humanness or divinity of Christ, the uh, they're all going to function as a kind of dialectical difference. So are you so kind of a dualism and dialectic and the um, identity? difference are would you say those are different aspects of the same issue yeah I think it's the same I think both dialectic and um, dualism is identity through difference yes but they're all the same thing they're all the same thing Mm -hmm. yeah and of course the lie there in dualism you're saying oh there are these two systems but actually the two, you know, good, evil, light, darkness, but actually they're contained within one thing, and that one thing is the capacity, you know, to, to know or understand. This is, you know, Kitato Nishida says, 
I am Satan and I am God. But I am in fact greater than Satan and God because I can synthesize that difference within myself. There's the ultimate dialectic. He's a good Zen Buddhist. He sounds just like the German idealist. So it East and West, it all breaks out. East and West is another dialectical. You know, if you wanted to do world religions, that's how that has functioned. Okay. Shall we read Galatians? What? What? Sharon? Okay, what do you want me to read? Can you read? Section, you yes, oh. we're going to read, uh, we're going to break it down, and you guys are going to tell me what you think. How do you feel? No, I, everybody. <laughs> Sharon, can you read 13, uh, or rather 15 and 16? We did, and I. Oh, we're going through it again. Okay. We we we. Okay. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Once the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say into his offspring, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Uh. Then, of course, later he's going to use the idea, well, actually, Abraham had two sons. And he's going to use another illustration. But the point is, who is the true seed of Abraham? The Christ, Christos, Messiah, is one. How many is Christ? Well, he's, in, in effect, the one through whom we are all made one, even though we be as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. So here is identity, not on the basis of difference, not, you know, male, female, but the plurality of persons are brought into unity in Christ, not an obliteration of their difference, but, uh, in fact, I think, you know, we still... uh, can have our differences, but those are no longer determinative of our identity. This is this this may sound oh he's saying some vague things here, but I think you can really help people here. You know who are you? Well, you know I, I got you know you can they, people can start telling you about all their problems or their sexual orientation or whatever. But is that who we are? And I say, no, who we are is to be found in Christ. And those things then are made secondary. All right, and then, uh, unless anybody else has, <coughs> since you read it, Sharon, you got any comments? I think a gra- like a real-life manifestation of that, I was having a conversation about with a group of women about my view of marriage and how I don't necessarily take the view of a submissive <coughs> wife and how I don't think that is a role of marriage, then I got asked, well, then what is your role of marriage? What what are you even going to do? Like, how can you even be a wife? And then I, you know, broke down, like, okay, 
well, that's not where my identity is, and that's not where his identity is either, but rather we have the same identity in the body of Christ, a corporate identity, where we have an identity, not just just Jake and I, but we have an identity of a community, of a thing that, you know, as Abraham's offspring, to where we are one in the body of Christ, and we are one, well, not yet, but we, you know, that kind of idea. Right, right. And and marriage is, of course, exactly the illustration Paul's going to use here. And it's a, an appropriate illustration, first of all, because it refers to your actual genderedness. Um, that this thing that Paul is describing is not disembodied. The promise is precisely in and through the body. The seed, there's nothing more intimate. The womb, you know, in Romans 4, Paul will talk about. This is a bodily, historic, you know, process that the promise will be enfleshed in Christ. That's an odd way to talk about. Because notice everything we did with the, you know, the other stuff. It's all referring, the human project is always a kind of project to escape. Hinduism, Buddhism, Babel, storming the heavens, Gnosticism. You can just go right on through. Baptist, Christian church, it doesn't matter. Uh, the, the, the impetus is always some sort of, you know, the idea, oh, the truth comes to us in some sort of disembodied form. But no, the promise is in and through these people and their bodies. It's in and through maleness and femaleness. And so we're talking about the full you know, reality of what it means to be human uh, is the way that we are bearers of the image and that we fulfill the promise. That's not definitive of who we are, but that is taken up into who we are in Christ. All right, then seven and 18 um, don't what I am saying is this the law which come, which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise for if the inheritance is based on the law it is no longer based on a promise but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise so did the law mess with the promise uh, and he says, well, no, the law came 430 years later. The point of the law is in no way that it's an interference with the promise made with Abraham. Uh, the law, then, is uh, a, uh, you know, it, it is added due to transgression, he's going to, to say, but the whole thing that we believe is dependent upon the promise given to Abraham. Right? That's an odd way to talk about it. You, you know, a promise. Would you rather have a promise or something a little more concrete? Come on now. Can you get a handle on a promise? How about a brick tower? That's concrete. Uh, well, actually, it's brick. Uh, how about 
a nation? How about, you know, the, the, the human project is going to go in two directions. It's going to try to establish some concrete reality that will, in, uh, you know, the, think of the Tower of Babel. It will, a concrete reality that storms the heavens. Uh, the, they're going to use the ladder of material reality, whether it is language, cities and nation states, to in some way achieve a transcendent order. So again, identity through difference, the idea that, oh yeah, there is still the acknowledgement of this imminent world, but the, the creation and language and all of that is in some way a kind of non-reality very often. It's maya in Hinduism. But the promise is a promise that's given to us in time, history. Uh, it's enfleshed. It's not a promise that takes us, transports us elsewhere. It's not a disincarnational promise. But I think that just as the promise is incarnate in Christ, we become incarnate. I think our inclination and our sinfulness is toward disembodiment, disincarnateness, or to state it in more simplistic terms, uh, we're not there. You know, you look into people's eyes, anybody home there? Nobody home? Where are you? Uh, very often we're just not there for other people. We're, we're, we're hiding, we're, we're not present. And so I think all of that is included here. Uh, that uh, the law then uh, is in no way mitigates the promise. And then Miguel, yes, has Miguel has his reading glasses. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions to the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by. An inter a mediator's mind, but what does yours say? An intermediator? Yeah. Now an intermediator implies more than one. What God is one. If somebody asks you, what's the purpose of the law? How would you answer? Yeah, I like that. It's a, it is a kind of it's a, a mediator. It's a Paul, Paul uses the language later. It's a tutor, and of course, by tutor, it's not that we learn anything. The tutor was the guy who would take the kids to school, take them from home to school. It was uh, something in between, and I guess we could describe this in with some reality here. Uh, I think that. If you believed what I just said about the drive to unity and oneness as death-dealing, I, I think there is the sense that Judaism is going to preserve a people on a different basis than other cultures and kingdoms are preserved. And so the law then will, you know, the Jews are already founded on a, you know the people of the book, the people of the promise. There, there's a different 
you know, they've not received life, they haven't received the promise, but they're already prepared for receiving the promise. So I think there's a practical reality here uh, that in the creation of the Jewish people and the law. The other thing that I already mentioned was that the law then is a marker of the alienation, you know, very practically in the temple, but also in the sacrifices. Uh, But then Paul, I think, he's describing a psychological reality. I think it's there in the Old Testament that is available in a Hebraic understanding of the human psyche uh, that is not otherwise available. I don't think it's an accident that Sigmund Freud is a Jew or that psychoanalysis was first attached, as you know, first seen as a kind of Jewish uh, understanding, because the whole functioning of a kind of split, the conscious and the unconscious, is a very Hebraic understanding. So I think we could talk for a long time about the purposes of the law uh, and describe that in very practical terms. But the point that Paul is making was my original point is the law though is if you imagine the law is the thing and that will be the tendency right Uh, the sinful tendency is to say the law is the thing then you're going to miss out on the unity of God the one family relationship and you're going to use the law like people use identity through difference and that's precisely what the Jews were doing. Um, later, Paul, well, I won't say that. That gets too graphic. I don't want to be graphic. Paul gets very graphic in Galatians. Okay. Uh, but we'll save that for later. All right, any other comments on that or any questions? Did everybody understand the difference between the mediator? The law is the mediator. It involves two parties. But the covenant does not involve two parties. God is one. But here is where the Trinity enters in. So, yes, God is one, that he's both the faithful keeper of the covenant in both sides here. All right, uh... 21 to uh, 22 and uh, is it Andy that's up next is the law then contrary to the promises of God certainly not for if the law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe what do you think it means here that the law, the whole world, is a prisoner of sin? Uh, well, it says the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised was given through faith in Christ Jesus. So, Paul is going to use a lot of enslavement language, prison language. Exodus language. You were slaves in Egypt. You were, uh, and the Exodus then is fulfilled in Christ. So the whole world was 
enslaved in some fashion or another. But the Jewish experience is the experience of a literal realization, not just that they were slaves to the Egyptians, but that they are a people scattered and alienated from both God and one another. And so they're, you know, subject to the nations, subject to Babylon, subject to the various places that they're scattered to. And so the Jewish experience is pointing to that time when they can be reunited. When does that happen, Paul says? It happens in Abraham. Here are the true people. Here's the true family of God. Here is the nation, you know, brought back together. Is that is that any problem there? Do we need to talk about the slavery or the imprisonment anymore? Paul talks about this in great detail in you know Romans, and he'll describe it in many different ways, uh, so that it, the enslavement is corporate and individual. Um, I did this on Sunday. Miguel, it was wonderful. You should have been there. Uh, Trent was there. So we talked about human righteousness. Where does it get you? Human morality, where does it get you? It's precisely our morality, our law-keeping, in which evil arises. Right? That is, our morality is our immorality. Our righteousness is our unrighteousness. Now that may sound strange to you, but this is Paul's description of a kind of perverse understanding in which we would sin, that grace might abound. We would, how do you get peace in the world? We're going to have to fight some wars. How do you, you know, gain uh goodness and righteousness well we've got to get rid of the evil people we're going to have to kill some of you sorry we'll have to sacrifice you know and of course this is Nazi Germany but this is the story of every nation that they would establish goodness and righteousness by in fact uh, the notion of some you know Nazi form of purity is not unusual and so our righteousness is as filthy rags not because you know, it's some dim comparison to the righteousness of God, but precisely because our righteousness is the, the very foundation of evil. Who killed Jesus? The good guys or the bad guys? Well, I mean, they were the good guys in that they were religious leaders, they were the ethical guys, they were the teachers, they were the PhDs of their day. Uh, they were the smart people, and they killed the Lord of glory. All right, let's go on to uh, 23 to 25. I'm having trouble myself seeing here. Um, who, whose turn is it? Uh, yeah. Beth, you want to read? Sure. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And then verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the law. 
So this is the, you all, you've all heard this, the supervisor. Run it down for us, Jake. Well, sharing with it better. It's the vessel from covenant to covenant, the custodian to the, the slave that took the children to the school, right? Yeah. That's Ketcherson. So, uh, and we've talked a little bit about Dikai Sune, justified by faith. Uh, that the things are made right through the faithfulness of God. This we didn't. I, I passed through this here, but we talked about it last week, right? Who's the faithful one? Well, Christ is the faithful one. How are we made right? In that we are faithful, found faithful, in as much as we are found to be in Christ. He is the one who is faithful to the covenant. So we're doing ethics not as a separate part of our Christianity. Saying, oh yeah, we, we got that we got saved now, and oh maybe we could be good on top of that. No, the point is that Jesus' goodness, his faithfulness, his walking in the manner that he did, constitutes a faithfulness to the covenant. And our participation then in his faithfulness is a participation in walking as he walked. So our ethic is not an additive to salvation. Our ethic is our salvation. Too strong? Salvation is something you practice. That was precisely the problem with the law. They couldn't practice it. They couldn't do it. But now we can practice it. So when he says justified, made righteous, that is precisely accomplishing what the law could not accomplish. It's not, oh, that Jesus, you know, in some way filled the legal requirements of the law in that sense, and God was angry and needed some blood and needed to kill somebody, and now that's all taken care of. No, but that God is found faithful, you know, to the covenant, and Christ then is found faithful, and we enter into that covenant relationship. That's what it means to be made right. You're made right in a familial, corporate identity. Righteousness never has anything to do with individual identity. It always has to do with being brought into a corporate family, right? So what's wrong with you? Well, you're alienated. You're separated. That's why you're so neurotic. That's why you're so caught up in this compulsion to repeat that Paul will describe. Uh, So what's the resolution? Being brought into, you're made right as you're brought into a corporate body, a love relationship with other people in God in which your true identity is to be found. And heretics are always those who disfellowship. Yes. Yeah. And I mean I think of like Jehovah's Witness where you know my friend from work who got kicked out you know in high school got kicked out of her house and got kicked out of the church for sleeping with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And so she was kicked out of the church. And so there she could not ever get into 
I mean, if their church was actually, but like say that that was actually sound. It can't be. It can't even be sound. There can't even be a hypothetical situation where that would be sound, where she would be missing out from salvation because of not having fellowship. Yeah, so remember that the, the heresy then will continue to do identity through difference. The way you do identity through difference is through some form of, the you know, oh, that you've broken the law, and so you, you know, you make a clear division. So Jehovah's Witnesses, cults tend to do that in a very clear way, but so do many churches that uh, the, the whole basis of the fellowship in a sense, you know, just look at the people that are there. Uh, they're all the same, yeah. Not a lot of, because they're doing identity through difference. Right, Miguel? Miguel can tell us both sides of this story, though. When you were in Arkansas or in Texas, tell us about the church you went to. Was it Mexican? Is Hispanic, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, and we could go around, you know, the Hmong. Who do they go to church? None of our Hmong brothers are here tonight. Uh, but that it's usually the same thing. So it's a it's a problem that we have in every you know, who do you go to church with? I go to church with white people. Wanna know it's funny, at my home church in Florida, there's lots of diversity, but the Haitians meet in their own part. The Puerto Ricans and Cubans, there's lots of different kinds. The Hispanic people have their own Spanish service upstairs. Then the white people go to the main building. And then the homeless, they get the part that's like, they just like put a wall up. <laughs> and they make homeless. a little annex for the homeless. <laughs> At least they got a wall, huh? So, after, let, church, huh? after church hours. Yeah, so everybody's already left. Oh, okay. So we got to name this thing, and that's what that's what I'm trying to do. I'm saying we got to name it. That if you're doing identity through difference, if you're a pervert, in other words, the pervert is always doing identity through difference. The pervert is always going to uh, establish his righteousness on the basis not of who of the fellowship, but of the disfellowship. It's not going to be on the basis of you know uh, that in some way you're just going to let the peace of God rule, but you're going to establish that peace. You're going to establish you, you know, the pervert sees himself as the instrument of God. That he is God's means of establishing righteousness. He is the embodiment of the law. That's pure evil. But many Christians, I'm afraid, have embraced an understanding and, and so, if we can name this thing, we got to name. We got to name the problem. We got to say, okay, this is our problem. Maybe we maybe we don't have a solution immediately, but at least let's get the problem in front of us. That our our tendency is to still fall into some form of legalism in the sense that we do identity through difference, or we do, uh, you know, on the basis of uh, these, you know. Dualisms, Jew, Greek, male, female. All right, and then the exciting part of 
28 to 29. Huh? I'm not seeing very well. 26 to 29? 20, well, let's just do, Jamie, can you do 26 27? So, the picture of baptism, of course, is that we're ontologically joined to the body of Christ. That we, uh, you know, are unified, that we are made one with, that we are, uh, you know, the picture here is uh, that we have put on Christ. We are clothed with Christ. So what's your problem? Well, you're naked and ashamed. Your tendency is to cover up with your own clothing, your own pride, your own nationalistic system, your own religious system. But the problem is that uh, shame comes, you know, uh, you know, pride precedes the fall. Pride, that is, our systems fall apart. The brick towers that we build don't really hold us together very well. The little leaves that we make. They may work in front of one another, but when God comes on the scene, we're still found to shame. And so the picture in Scripture is often the picture of nakedness and shame. So that salvation depends on what clothes you wear. Right? The white robes of righteousness, meaning we're clothed in Christ. We've found our identity in Christ. No longer in the identities that we would fabricate for ourselves which would be inclusive of the kind of way, you know, uh, that we do race and those things. All right, and then the last two, 28 and 29. This is the exciting conclusion. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We are the heirs. We've inherited the promise. We don't do identity through difference, but we do identity on the basis of the unity, the oneness of God found in Christ, that Christ ushers us into that unity uh, so that we literally find the unchanging promise as a means to establish a sort of certainty it's not the certainty that the, this world would give us, you know, the concrete certainty of a big tower, a fine principle, a good scientific theory, but the certainty of a promise that's been given to us by God. It's a little vague, isn't it? Yeah, if you're looking for the wrong thing, if you're looking for ecstatic unity and immediate oneness, the beatific vision, you know, uh, this thing is not going to be very satisfying. But the point is you have to give up on the human project in order to accept that what we've been given is a promise. Any comment or question on the last few verses? Miss Saxton, do you have anything to say? In verse 20, when it's the mediator, however, it does not represent just one party, but God is one. It's the idea that God the Father made the promise and Christ the Son fulfilled it. Right? 
Yeah, and, and he makes the specific point. Uh, the law was put in effect by through angels, by a mediator. That is, this isn't the unity. This isn't the this isn't the promise, the singular promise. So the two things are emphasized. Um, that the law is a multiplicity. The very fact of a multiplicity. There's, you know, you got God and you got the ones that the law was given to, and never the twain shall meet. Right? So there's a, a mediator you've got to go between. We can refer to Christ as a mediator, but of course, the point is that he's not a mediator in the sense that the law or the angels are a mediator. He is, you know, the writer of Hebrews says, the true image of God, that we've entered into the Holy of Holies. So that's what I meant here, that Christ is not in some way a secondary quality. No, as I understand it, Christ is who God is, that he is the essence of God, so that our participation in the Trinity is a participation in the essence of who God is. The law was never that. You know, you have the theophanies, the appearance of God. Did they know God? Not in any um, immediate, you know. So what we're saying when we know God is this holistic sense that is inclusive of everything that we are. Not just our head knowledge that, oh, now I know, but a Hebraic sense of knowing uh, that we've been joined to the body of Christ. Is that, does that... So, there's several things that are important here. Monotheism gets us partway there, but monotheism without Trinitarianism falls short. You've got it, the, the problem of the one and the many... If you have a, you know, this is the problem of fusing Greek philosophy with theology because the problem is resolved through the unmoved mover, and that's no resolution at all. So it, it, the problem of the one and the many really is a problem. It is an existential problem for us, but it's resolved for us in the person and work of Christ, who is a part of the